Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Kristen Lowry, and I'm joined by my husband, Daniel. Hey, hey, hey. This season, we are focusing on stories from the field. We are speaking with practitioners of mission and gospel movement in the world. And on this episode, we have the privilege of Brian Johnson joining us. Hey, hey. Brian, Brian, hey, hey, yeah, you got to get that right. Man. Hey, hey. It's, oh, my hey, God. Hey, hey, Like, you know, you need <laughs> oh, the inflections. All right. Brian and Kristen have been serving in ministry together since before they graduated high school. From the streets of Philadelphia to the desert of Arizona, from the inner city to the rural context, being on mission has always been a part of their story. Church planting is another clear storyline. Whether it was leading worship for a small church plant in North Alabama, launching and leading a church plant in Northwest Atlanta, or planting a church in an Irish bread pub in West Alabama, they have always been a part of new endeavors. For nearly four years, they served with a team of Westside Family Church in Kansas City, where Brian led worship in a video venue, supported the training of short-term mission teams, and helped develop and lead two missional learning communities, one being Missionaries Made and the second being Microchurch Learning Community. Missionaries Made is based on five incarnational rhythms that help everyday people live like missionaries where they live, work, learn, and play. The Microchurch Learning Community then helps these missionaries develop extended spiritual families in their neighborhoods and networks of relationships. The Johnsons believe this call led to the Kansas City Underground is something for which their story has always been preparing and leading them towards. Leadership in this community has drawn together the experiences and learning, the gifts and calling, the wounds and healing of their entire lives, leveraging it all for the deepest impact. Brian, thank you for joining us. Certainly appreciate having you on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I got to ask Alabama or Auburn? Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Okay. <laughs> All day long. So we got to share. There's this guy, uh, a gentleman, John and Nancy Pantelis, that uh, were on a couple episodes ago. And they share the story uh, about how they were trying to adopt their now current daughter. And for she was in Alabama. And how does the story go, honey? They were standing in front of the judge. They were standing in front of the judge. And he said, well, do you have anything else to say? And John was so nervous. All he said was, roll, roll tide. tide. <laughs> right? And he's from, he's from Philadelphia, right? And then the judge was like, that's it, baby. <laughs> Hit the gravel. And she's yours. <laughs> and he's like, I have no idea why I yelled roll tide. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> so you guys take it serious down there in the South, huh? We take it so seriously. It was a great ESPN commercial about it. It's like it, for every moment it, that you can give a roll tide. It's it's great. Okay. Good. Roll tide. So let's roll tide. Um <laughs> Brian, can you share with us a funny outreach story or failure or something that proves that you are, in fact, a human being? Uh, every, every single day. Yeah. In, fact, in fact, while you're saying that, I was like, I remember when I first moved to Auburn, we went to the, to the games every weekend because in the southeast, you know, it's, it's Jesus, football and family. And most of the time, not mm. in that order. 
uh, and like on <laughs> on campus at Auburn, and I'm walking around in an Alabama shirt. This is how to missionally not engage people: is to wear an <laughs> Alabama shirt in Auburn. Uh, some failure stories. <laughs> Like I said, I can probably oh, come up with one for every day. Uh, I was thinking of one internationally. I remember we were working with a local community, really trying to live into these rhythms of what is your dream? What does Jesus want to do here? We don't want to export Western Christianity. We're here to just support mm-hmm. what Jesus wants to do here. Learn from you, mm-hmm. celebrate what you're doing, step in with you. We were walking around on this property of this local church that we were partnered with. And it just really felt like a good partnership that was growing. And um, the, the senior pastor of the church I was a part of at the time, I was functioning as the the missions pastor, right? And mm. he's walking around and we're looking at this piece of property and they were saying something about the land. He goes, I wonder how much it would take to buy this. And like, if you know anything about international mission context, you should never make that comment as a white person in in another context, you know, it's just like, don't, don't say that yeah. phrase. Yeah. Uh, so that was a Saturday afternoon. The next morning we're like in, you know, the worship service and we're like 10 or 15 minutes in and the pastor stands up and she says, we just want to celebrate because they're going to buy us this land. And we were all like, you know, we didn't hear it at first. We didn't hear it at first because like the, the translation, right? Like she says something and they just go nuts. <laughs> Our translator leans over and says, uh, apparently you just bought a piece of property. <laughs> oh my God. Well, no. Wow. No, we didn't. Wow. So that was a, uh, you know, a learning moment locally in my own neighborhood, just engaging friends after months of just investing in this place, building relationships trying to move to spiritual conversations, gospel conversations. Uh, a friend of mine, we sat on the driveway one night after an Alabama game. And I, I feel like I can tell this story now because the first time I did this, it, like the man surrenders his life to Jesus, right? He's like, I'm celebrating. This is a great day. And the next day I'm talking to a crew of people and I'm sh- I'm sharing his story. Like I'm telling his story, things you should never do. Don't tell someone else's story. But I told a story and it was in the context where it was being recorded. And somehow he, through whatever means, got a hold of this story. And so he texted me a few days later. He's like, hey, so I heard a neighbor uh, gave his life to Jesus on your driveway. Who else who, who else was that? And I was like, oh, no. And I just had that like blood draining from the face moment. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I told your story. And ultimately, it was cool. He's a great guy. Love him to death. Dear friend, deep friendship, but it was just one of those moments of like, oh, things you should not do. Make sure that someone else tells their story before you tell it, or at least get permission. Uh, So those were like moments where I just went, "Mm, I have so much to learn, so much to learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, oh, that's tough. That's tough. Well, thanks for uh, joining us, Brian. I kind of first came in contact with the Tampa Underground, actually. My wife and I were uh, transitioning out of our local church ministry and we watched the Tampa Underground's video, the yeah. documentary. So and I remember sitting in our bedroom crying, saying, I want to do something like that. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's our heart. 
And then through following Tampa, we kind of came across you guys at the KC Underground and have just been so privileged by everything that you've you've put out there, that you've presented the opportunity to be part of your hub cohort. And so I am just so excited to share what you guys are doing with our audience. It's super exciting. So let's get started. Tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into mission, how you know you kind of came about getting into the KC Underground. Yeah, I'd start just my story of entering into this way of life or this paradigm goes back somewhere around 2012, really it was a little before that, actually. I would say like if I were to condense my childhood, I grew up in the Southeast. I grew up in a a strong uh, family of faith. My mom led me to Jesus at the breakfast table because she would do a devotion with us every morning before we go to school. And I love Jesus. I love the church. I had a very narrow view of who he was and the gospel that he proclaimed. And that narrow view was really about what happens after you die rather than what happens today, rather than how the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And that was the way I lived. I wanted to introduce people to Jesus who is going to live with you in glory or you're going to live with him. Or maybe that was really it. Maybe that was my, you're going to live with him or he's going to live with you. Anyway, the point was it was about what happens one day. And there was a hope for something that was kind of good news but it really didn't affect my day-to-day life. But there was still something about him that I just loved, and I pursued him. I gave my life to the quote-unquote vocational ministry, right? And somewhere around 2009, a person offered this question of, have you ever made disciples? And somehow that had been left out of my previous engagement with Christianity and with following Jesus. And it wasn't that the word was missing. It was the concept of what does it mean to make a disciple that can make a disciple? And at the same time, that idea was coming into play. Another idea from N.T. Wright, understanding this this concept of the kingdom entering into the present and heaven invading earth and the good things of the kingdom being present today and informing our lives. I was reading this book, Surprised by Hope. It was exploding that view of the gospel that I had. And then a couple of other things about what it means to live, quote unquote, incarnationally. All of these ideas were coming together at one time. And then one day in 2012, after two or three years of really processing, am I really faithfully following Jesus in my day and time like, like he would have desired for us? I was walking around our neighborhood with my wife and our firstborn son, and we just kind of walk in laps. You know, he's probably nine months old, something like that. Uh, so he's in the stroller. We end up in the driveway of my next door neighbor. He's the only guy that I knew in our whole little subdivision. And uh, partly because he was a home brewer and had a wall of blue ribbons. Um, I don't know where you stand on that. Sorry, but that's just where I was at the time. So I'm right there no. with you, man. I'm, I'm a little bummed. We've, the guy across the street from me doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say, we've, we've found that alcohol is really a wonderful entrance into the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Kristen's actually starting a discovery Bible study. Hopefully that is a mom's wine club. So yeah, we're all about it. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Alan Hirsch <laughs> says that most pastors would do better after two beers in them. So, <laughs> Amen. so you know, we're getting to like hang with this guy and you know this is a small town i say a small town it's probably 50 60,000 people but it's a college town so it has this more 
not fully rural, not fully suburban, not fully urban. You know, it's just a unique feel. A lot of people know each other. And I work on staff at a church of a thousand to twelve hundred. I should know my neighbors. He's the only one I knew. And I'm standing in his driveway and he knows everybody. Then he's not exactly what you would say as somebody that's just pursuing Jesus in all of life. And he asked me about the neighbor across the street. And he said, hey, did you know that her mom passed away? I didn't even know that her mom was still living because she looked like she was in her late 70s, right? And I was like, uh, no, that's, gosh, that's terrible. And he said, you don't, you don't even know her name, do you? And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we haven't really met yet, you know? And I mean, without missing a beat, he said, man, that's the problem with you Christians is you make loving people a job. And it was like, I I can't tell you the number of times I've told that story and every time it just hits so deep uh, because it's true. I had worked at that point for the church for a decade and I didn't even know my neighbors. Mm -hmm. So loving my neighbor wasn't really even an option. I couldn't even follow through on loving my neighbor because I didn't even know their name. Yeah. And so all of these ideas were clashing together and creating this turbulence in my soul. And in that moment, uh, Kristen and I just made this decision. We're going we're gonna to pursue a new way. And we still worked for the prevailing model of church for, gosh, another six or seven years after that. But along the way, we were slowly kind of doing this exit out of that and discovering new forms of the church. Like that's, that's a probably a more helpful way to say that. We never left the church. We just left the form of church that we were a part of to explore new ways. And what would it look like to multiply disciples that were making the world a better place? What would it look like to multiply disciples who were asking the question, if we look at our city and we think about the kingdom of God, what parts of our city don't look like the kingdom of God and how do we bring the kingdom to those places? And so, you know, we would, we would just ask that question with the people with whom we were making disciples, what doesn't look like the kingdom? Well, there's no hungry people there. Well, how would we solve that? We should plant a garden. So we did that. Did a community garden for the city. There'd be no lonely people. Well, how would we address that? Uh, well, we would be friends to lonely people. Okay, well, where are lonely people? And we came up with a nursing home. So we went and we would do a service at a nursing home and we would get to know the residents there. And one of them was Miss Edna. She served in World War II, beautiful woman. Aww. And she ended up competing in the miss senior living for Alabama or something. And so, you know, we had these gifts in filmmaking. And so we filmed her and told her story and she won miss senior of Alabama that year. You know, it's like, how do we bring Mm -hmm. these beautiful things of the kingdom to the places where we don't see the beauty of the kingdom? And it just, it brought so much more joy to living, to bring that into the now of the everyday life. So that's kind of our story and mission. And then you asked about the Kansas City Underground. We moved to Kansas City in 2015. We were working for a large 4,500 member church. And while we were there, you know, I just had reached a place where I was like, I'm not going to spend 40 hours a week picking four songs and practicing them and getting ready for Sunday. And I figured out how to do that job in like 12 hours a week. And so for those of you listening that are spending 40 hours a week, I can train you to do that job in 12. <laughs> So, I was going to say, I can probably do it in three. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I'm including the actual service time, the planning, the rehearsing, oh, okay. the the core chart Got making, okay. like the the holistic job. You can do yeah. it. There as well. you go. Yeah, so, that's you worship pastors. That's real pastors. We have yeah, we have actual things to do. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's so funny. We began yeah. to train these people in the everyday rhythms of life. Of how how do you live like a missionary where you live, work, learn, and play. And how do you live in the same ways that Jesus lived? How do you begin in prayer the same way Jesus did? How do you pray with and for your neighbors the same way Jesus did? How do you listen the way Jesus did? How do you eat the same way Jesus did? How do you serve the same way Jesus did? How do you proclaim the kingdom, share it the same way Jesus did? So those are the blessed rhythms. That's what, like just these normal everyday butcher, baker, candlestick maker folk in the church were training on these rhythms through a little learning community that you mentioned earlier. So people start doing this, right? In their neighborhoods, in their workspaces. And what ends up happening is in about six months, all these people that we were training in this stuff, because we were living it in our own neighborhood, they're experiencing the same stories we were. And they're coming back going, hey, um, so our neighbors are taking spiritual next steps toward Jesus but it's not toward the weekend experience. Like they still don't want to come. <laughs> so we like, yeah, we figured that would happen. So are you saying that not even Jesus can get them to go to church? Is that? <laughs> well, I've never said that out loud, but maybe. <laughs> so we created another. We're going to edit that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'd leave that in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we reframe that definition though to where we understood and helped people understand. Actually, the church is about a people, not a place. It's about identity over activity. It's about who you are over what you do. And so we train people in understanding how do you create healthy rhythms of what we now call a microchurch in your network of relationships. And we saw about seven of those emerge. And after about a year of that, the church decided that they're going to go towards video venue and multiplying in that way. And it's kind of reached a place where it was like, we're either going to try to build around a brand and a video, or we're going to set people free into very unique pockets of people all across our city to see what we consider extended spiritual families emerge. And so the underground was born in Kansas City anyway, in 2019 as an organization that was existing to support a decentralized movement. So we started with three of those little micro churches, and currently we're at right at 40 that have emerged over the last two and a half years. Mm. So that's my story into mission and the very brief story of the Kansas City Underground emerging. That's cool. No, that is a great story. You know, since you mentioned Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright, uh, I don't know how many of our listeners have read that book. It's a, it's a world changer. I read it about the same time you were reading it. Do you think you could give a little bit about what N.T. Wright is saying, and then maybe some of the common understanding we have in the church that's different. Maybe just like one, two, three, like main. Man, it's been such a hot minute since I read that, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what I walked away with. This is like the, I guess, the, the bigger thought process I had that I walked away with. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, most of my understanding of the gospel was what happens after you die. And my friend Rob always says mm. the sweet by and by pie in the sky, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it has, it has very little to do with the mm -hmm. hope that I have for today. And the surprise by hope piece for me that I walked away with was 
the kingdom is breaking in now. And so I described a little bit of it in telling the story, but like the flip for me was understanding when Jesus says, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, he actually meant that. And so when he rises from the dead, that's actually the kingdom of God breaking in. Like resurrection life does not belong in this life. People rising from the dead as a part of the kingdom in its fullness. We're not there yet. So in theological studies, we talk about the already not yet. We can experience already little pieces, but we don't have the, the not yet. One day we'll experience all that there is. We're just not there yet. Uh, and so what I walked away with was like, if the kingdom has broken in with this resurrection life, that was the question I walked away with is where do I not see the kingdom then? And so mm-hmm. that's why all of those questions really just began to flow out was like, yeah, all of the things we talk about, there's no more tears in the kingdom. How do we erase tears here? There's no more fatherlessness mm-hmm. in the kingdom. How do we bring fatherlessness? Mm-hmm. And I, I believe he even talks about that in, in the book. Uh, this may be a Dallas Willard thing as well. It's like the things for the kingdom that we begin now exist on into the kingdom. They're not like they don't exist here present and then we die and they die. Like the good news that we bring, the part of the kingdom that we bring is like ever expanding from one degree of glory to the next, Mm -hmm. if you want to use that second Corinthians language. So I don't know, you're the professor, sir. So you can bring more of that, but that's what I walked away with. So No, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. Not too many people reference mm-hmm. that book. So I was super excited when you did. I love, your, I love I was it. Say, right. Yeah. Your spidey geek senses were tingling, <laughs> right, dear? One guy was on the podcast and mentioned Greek and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna like I need a moment to <laughs> I just need a moment. Please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sweating. Yeah. The, the other question I wanted to uh, ask you is, is based on your story is, is when you said, uh, someone asked you, have you ever made disciples? Well, I'm pretty sure at that time you thought you were making disciples. Right. hundred percent. Right. Or else you wouldn't be doing in the church. So mm-hmm. what is, what, like, what was the change? Like, what did you think you were doing? <laughs> yeah. And then what, what is the realization you've had now? Yeah. Disciple making was just about converts for sure. And I think, mm-hmm. I think most people in a Western context can, can say that, or at least at some point, I hope that you can just admit that. Like, it's not evil. Like the language that we use is it's not incorrect. It's just incomplete. Mm-hmm. And so we want people to meet Jesus and surrender to him. It's just often we bring them to him, introduce them, and then walk away. And there's no information of what will then happen, right? So disciple-making before that, other, otherwise I wouldn't have given my life to it, was mostly about, hey, just get get saved. That's the language in the Southeast for sure. Get saved. Saved from what? <laughs> I'm doing all right. You know. Um, now, people that are understand their brokenness in deep ways are like, absolutely, I want to be saved. But even that is like, it's not a once and done. The good newsing is happening in the everyday stuff of life. It continues on. We need the gospel for ourselves daily. And so when we talk about disciple making, we talk about someone that is growing in character and calling, someone that is apprenticing to Jesus in the everyday stuff of life and growing through community and and habit-fueled ways into the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And that's how we flesh out that definition. A very simple way that we talk about that is uh, someone's character times their calling equals their impact in the world. Mm-hmm. So the fruit of the spirit is 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Am I more loving today than I was yesterday? How is the spirit informing that? And if I'm more loving, my kids will know it. Mm-hmm. If I'm more patient, absolutely, my kids will know it. Honestly, my kids will just know, <laughs> is Papa better today than he was yesterday? Um, but the people around us can see that. And like, this is the character that is being formed in us because of the work of the Spirit. Before, there was not, there was an idea that we would just be better just because. Mm-hmm. The end. And it's not true. It's like, I'm, I have to behold the Spirit of God, behold Jesus to become like him. And the calling piece becomes this thing that I pursue as well. Like we have these passages that tell us that he's deposited these good gifts in us. And we have passions that he has put into us. And we can see these things in our story. And so that's a a primary way for us now to understand how we help people form in the rhythms and the ways of Jesus being with him, becoming like him, doing as he did as we help them understand where are you growing in the fruit of the spirit? Where are you growing in the gifts of the spirit? And you watch people under like, as they understand when I grow in the fruit and an awareness of my calling, the more they step into those passions, the more they want to grow in their character and they just ratchet each other up. The more they grow in their character, they're like, because of my character growth, I, I have more, you know, authority in my calling. And because I'm growing in my, the authority of my calling. I want my character to grow and their impact in bringing the universal flourishing of God into all things. You just see that begin to increase as well. So that's what we're giving our lives to here in Kansas City is how do we help people grow in character and calling so that they can help other people grow in character and calling. And we will see these very unique ways that the culture is being impacted as a result. You mentioned a couple of times the prevailing model church decentralized network for you and I and and Kristen, we kind of know what you mean by that, (laughs) right? But what you guys are doing in the KC Underground is really kind of turning things upside down, really, in in the way that we understand church in its structure and in, in its organization. Can you share with us a little bit about what you mean by prevailing model, how the KC Underground is different, and maybe how you're structured to look different. Yeah, when we use the term prevailing, we never mean it in a derogatory way uh, or a crass way. It's just, if you looked at the forms of church in the West, there's one that is prevailing. There's more of them. (laughs) We also don't mean it's winning. (laughs) There's there's just more of them. Um, And so the easiest way to think about it if you're above the age of 18 months, uh, potentially below, you understand shapes. So think of a triangle in your head and one triangle, you know, if you were to just think of a normal triangle, you put it on a desk, there's a base that's on the ground. Now, uh, I'm going to try to describe this. <laughs> there's, there's three phases, right? At the very top, there's a, like if you drew a line about a third of the way up or two thirds of the way up, there's a little tiny piece at the top. This is the way the prevailing model works. At the top, there's a few people that set the vision. They set the tone. They're inviting people into it. And those people lead this kind of middle phase, right? So if you drew a line a third of the way up and a line two thirds of the way up, that little tiny piece at the top is informing that middle section of some volunteers and some leaders. 
And those volunteers and the leaders end up doing the work of ministry for those that usually attend the weekend experience. And so our framework for church is based off of what a very few people at the top have a vision for, and they're inviting us up into that, that are down at the bottom and sit at this base level. And sometimes we get to move up a layer, but usually not to, right? We never get to the top where we get to talk about vision and, and give voice to that. And that's the model in, you know, out of 300 something thousand churches in America, they pretty much all operate that way. <laughs> you know, there's a yeah. vision. We lead a team mm-hmm. of volunteers mm-hmm. and they do the work of ministry for those that show up. And I met Jesus in that model. It's not a, it's not an evil model. I'm not saying any of that. It's just a model, a form of the church. We are trying to flip that model on its head. So you imagine that triangle is sitting there with a big wide base at the bottom. Now turn it on its head and it's just sitting on the little point. And the lines are where they were before, but the way that we see it is we have a small team of leaders. Um, We call it our little apostolic team. And we don't mean some fancy spiritual thing by that. We use apostolic in the means of we're blazing new trails, making new connections, breaking new ground. That little team, we each have a team that we lead. So we're trying to build in multiplication, right? And that little team of teams coaches missionaries in our city. So the, again, the triangle's upside down. The most important part of this upside down triangle is at the top now, this big wide base where the missionary and microchurch leaders exist. And so we're just equipping each of them to discern and discover to whom has Jesus sent you in our city? What place has he sent you to contextualize the gospel? What are the names of the people in those places? How do you get to know their stories? And our job is to equip them to be sent out. So in in the prevailing model, we use this language of that little tiny piece at the top that's setting vision. That piece is saying, we can do it. You can help us. In the underground, we're trying to flip the script and say, you can do it. And we want to help you go plant the gospel in every corner of our culture, every pocket of people in this city until we saturate it with beauty, justice, and the good news of Jesus. So ultimately, the network is these little expressions of church all over the city that's decentralized. The things that hold us together are the Apostles' Creed because it worked for them, so it should work for us. <laughs> our manifesto, which is our 18 values, like Jesus is our way and he's the only way. Uh, culture and ethnicity, we're not colorblind. We value that there are multiple ethnicities and, and the beauty of Jesus is expressed in each one. We value the poor because they will always be among us. Like These are the things that inform who we are. We don't have doctrines uh, that, that define us. We have a creed that draws us to the center. Uh, as people are center, excuse me, as people are being pushed out uh, mm-hmm. to the edges of our culture. Hopefully that uh, <laughs> terrible graphic <laughs> was communicated to you. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I think if they want, they can go on your website and you guys have a little download there that you can yeah. check out. And I know, um, Kristen, you and I were part of that prevailing model. I mean, we were we were the little dots at the top for, you know, 15 years and then kind of coming out of that has been challenging in, in, I don't, I don't know if you've experienced this, Brian, but you, you just kind of default to a, a particular way. 
you know, <laughs> like I, I keep defaulting to like, let's have a worship service. And, and, and that's just not, it, there's just a different way of doing things. But you, you mentioned these people that are going out and creative expressions of the gospel and helping them to do things. Can you share like any particular stories of what that looks like, like in the real everyday nitty gritty world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I always try to tell my own story because it's mine. And like we did this, you know, we moved to Kansas City and we chose to love our neighbors, like our actual real life neighbors that we began to know their names. And and we really lived those blessed rhythms. Mm-hmm. Like when we moved in, we didn't know anybody. The only thing we had was a paper plate. In hindsight, people have coached me that I could have just used my smartphone. But like we, we just grabbed a paper plate and every time we met somebody, we'd write their name down. And we drew our cross section of our streets and we draw their house mm-hmm. and their name and little details about them. We just get to know them, right? And, you know, along the way, we throw parties and we find try to find meaningful ways to serve them. And ultimately, we reach this place where we have built a little family. Like we have a family that's existing together with deep sense of community. And then Jesus began to inform that family. So now a microchurch has emerged. Corey is a friend of ours and Corey just, he worked for a prevailing model church and he felt this sense of Jesus, you want me to go somewhere else? You want me to step into the quote unquote margins in some way and just felt Jesus invite him to the jail context. So he went, he started a discovery group and one cell and that multiplied to the, or one pod and that multiplied to every pod in the county jail. And as these men primarily were meeting Jesus, when they stepped out, they found a family and what's now called Share the Hope. And they continue to re-enter the jail, start new discovery Bible studies. Men are meeting Jesus. And as they're coming out, like that little microchurch is now multiplied into eight microchurches that includes these men affected by incarceration and their families. And now there's one for primarily for women who have been affected by abuse and addiction. Um, I think about Chad Chambers. Grew up kind of western edge of the city. Grew up a cowboy. Grew up in the rodeo context. Now his daughter does rodeoing. And they travel with this little band of rodeo people. And they have a microchurch that exists in the rodeo context. And they just sent us, you know, three baptisms from last weekend. Um, I think about... Uh, Tim and Deanne Garrett, who just have this passion for international peoples and they're engaging Algerian refugees. And so they're, they're caring for their needs and they're, they're walking alongside this community. And it's one of those we're believing eventually we'll see a microchurch emerge among that context of people. And I think about Casey. Casey's an adult with special needs. Um, he's uh, high-functioning. And he uh, has a brother that's lower functioning that lives at a facility with adults for special needs. And Casey decided he wanted to start a discovery Bible study in that facility. And now we celebrate that a microchurch has emerged among this pocket of people. These are, these are actual people who cannot leave their facility and quote unquote, go to a church. The gospel has to be taken and planted among them. And even for people that, that can leave their context and attend a brick and mortar church somewhere are just not going to do that. A more effective way is to send missionaries into those contexts. The problem is that we have so confused church with a building and an event 
that we've missed out on the extended spiritual family piece. And we're missing out on a richness of identity and belonging in, again, a unique context all across our city. Like we, you know, whenever I talk to people about this, I'm like, if, if I mention the the microchurch among the LGBTQ and the microchurch among formerly incarcerated men and the rodeo community, typically those people don't get along, right? Just like if you just went by stereotypes, you, you know, like they're not all coming to the same building. A few of them might because they have a little bit more grace for each other maybe, but ultimately, right, they're judging each other before they get anywhere. Uh, ro- rodeo people don't get along with anyone. Like that. <laughs> and Kristen's like, got a rodeo family background, right? How do you, they, like, those, are, those are a special community right there. <laughs> you know, when I tell that story too, I'm like, well, ultimately, shouldn't Jesus reinform that so that they do belong together? Well, yeah after Jesus begins informing them of that, you know what I mean? Like not on the front end. And what we've been trying to do is put people in buildings on the front end before Jesus reforms their life to create that hunger and desire for the diversity of the community. We're trying to sling the diversity in on the front end and it, it so rarely works. That's why we don't have a bunch of diverse communities. When we do gather the underground and really large gatherings now, we're seeing more diversity because people's lives have been reformed and transformed and the stereotypes fall away. I know we're a part of a big family seeking gospel saturation together. That's what's pulling me into this. Not the expectation that I have to love you. Right. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. One of the words that you've been using over and over is the term missionary. Some baggage on that one in there. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like missionaries. I mean, you know, there's great, there's even gradations of missionaries. You know, if you go to Africa, like your cream of the crop missionary, you know, then it's like Asia and, you know, Europe. Oh, that's so tough over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why missionary? Why, like, why that term? How does that best describe what you're trying to bring up with people? Yeah. So we're trying to really recapture the heart of the Missio Day. So just to throw some, uh, I'm trying to get you lit up again with some some high-level language there, um, is trying to recapture the heart of like God is a missionary sending God. And the one that he sends is himself. So God send, I mean, if, if you look back through the old, like the whole biblical narrative, you see in the beginning, God forms a people and then there's this brokenness, right? But then like God is pursuing his people. And even in choosing a people, he's using that people to become missionaries. So when you see Jeremiah 29, a, you know, chapter, and it talks about plant gardens and build homes and marry off your sons and daughters and seek the blessing of the city to, to which I've sent you. Like that's his, I have sent you there, right? I mean, he is sending his people into captivity. And when they're sent there, yes, it's oppressive, but he's also saying, well, now you're a missionary there. Make it beautiful. And then God sends his son, and then the son sends the spirit, and then the father, the son, and the spirit send the church. We've already been sent. And so we are just going for that language of the missio, like, and, and trying to really lean into God already has a mission, which is to redeem and restore all things. We're not trying to export a Western Christianity mindset. And it's also just a word that we love. 
And again, we're trying to recapture the heart of, and we tell friends, you know, if this doesn't make sense in your context, don't use the word, you know, like we have friends in uh, Phoenix and we were coaching them on some of our con- concepts and and they're, they're dreaming about what does it look like to build a, um, a hub in Phoenix that would see new disciples made and microchurches emerge. And they're like, Hey, listen, we can't use the word missionary. And we're like, why? Like, well, this is like a second largest area for the LDS church. Oh yeah. You know? So like when people hear, hear the word missionary, they immediately attach it to Latter-day Saints and knocking on doors and all that. We're like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't use that there either. (laughs) (laughs) And so it depends on the context. I've recently, until I know who I'm speaking with, I'll use the term missional leader. Hmm. But missionary is just the language because, again, like it's really a beautiful word if we pull off what happened with Western Christianity in the way that we exported our religion. But a good missionary one that looks and does like Jesus steps into a unique culture. And we say he or she learns their songs and they learn about their feasts and festivals and they learn their language. They don't bring their songs and their own feasts and festivals and their own language. Right. Mm. Like uh, even me just recently, just, I was, it's college football season. I don't know when this thing's going to air, but it's back. And we tailgate every single weekend. Do you know how many people tailgate in the Midwest <laughs> during football season in Kansas wow. City? It's like a negative <laughs> 1,000 degrees. <laughs> I mean, like, give them a break. <laughs> they're big on the Chiefs, but not on Saturdays, right? Because KU is not that great and K State's down the road. And I was texting my neighbors last night, and we've done this the past several years. We have invited them in to love Alabama football. Well, guess what? My neighbors did that. But I had this conviction last night when I'm about to send this text. I was like, why am I asking them to love my team? What time does K-State play? And the the party needs to start when K-State plays, not when Alabama plays. And that was like a shift that, you know, I've been doing this for years. And like, we've seen fruit. Don't get me wrong. Our neighbors have loved it. I'm not, I'm not trying to be too hard pressed on that idea, right? But just the point is that a good missionary learns the songs, the festivals, the feast, and the language of the people to whom they've been sent. And then they let the good news uh, speak into that and they draw the good news out of that rather than saying, this is what we're going to do now. Learn my things, do my things. Uh, so that's, you know, that's what Jesus did. Now he puts on flesh as a Jewish person. He learns the language. He learns a craft. He learns, we, we go up to Jerusalem seven times a year and we celebrate. I mean, it's all of the things that go with it. And he reinforms all of those things with what Jesus is, with, with what the heart of the Father is doing. I, I really love the term. And the, the reason I do is because, you know, when we're looking at our city where we live, Santa Cruz, you know, greater Los Angeles area, when I looked at it as a, as a pastor or a church planter, I looked at it one way, like, what would it take to get a worship service going, right? What would it take to get some youth group and men's ministry and women's ministry going? But when I look at my city as a missionary looks at it, it's a vastly different conversation, Mm. right? Because worship services and ministries and all that, like it's just not part of the equation. So we always talk about uh, here and like if 
Christianity had never come to our city and we were the first missionaries, what would we do? Mm. And I've heard you guys talk about that over and over. Like yeah. it's just a different paradigm. Do you agree or some comment on that? No, absolutely. You know, <laughs> like our, you know, metaphor is Papua New Guinea, all of these islands, you know, they're geographically split apart. I was just in LA, by the way. And so like, you know, it's like, what, what part of the, what part of LA are you talking about? It's massive. Yeah. You know, you can't go in and go, well, something that, that works in East LA, which is what largely, I forget what the language that was spoken there. Right. Spanish. pretty yeah. much. And then, yeah. you know, then you go to, I'm trying to figure out there's like a, in the Burbank area, I think there's like a large Armenian community, right? Mm-hmm. Are you going to plant a church that's Armenian? Well, you just eliminated being able to reach the Hispanic community. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because one, geographically, we're a long way from each other. I left off the Papua New Guinea metaphor. Sorry about that. Uh, But same deal. It's like, is is a faithful expression of the church to build a building and call people to it? If, if it is in Papua New Guinea, I've literally left people out of the equation that live on other islands and can't get here. I got to choose a language. So now I've eliminated people that don't speak this language. You know, like the, the metaphor of a missionary as well goes beyond our, our really, it speaks to our own souls first and our own families, you know? So like we even coach missionary leaders on how, how do you just become a good missionary to your kids, right? What does disciple making with my kids look like? Be a good missionary to them, figure it out, start listening, right? Listen to what they're talking about. Ask questions, ask better questions, eat with them. This is what Jesus did. Like eat with the people that are different from you. Your teenagers are different from you. (laughs) It's like become a good missionary to your kid, become a good missionary to your spouse. Like the language, I guess, transcends just this idea of like taking the gospel, you know, but it teaches us how to just be better, more loving people in general, because the idea behind it is I want to know you and I want to speak good news into what will be good news to you, not what was good news to me. Mm. Let me, um, let me ask this question. You, you guys are kind of breaking new ground, so to speak, with different forms of the church. What do you think are some of the barriers that keep people from mission, from creative expressions of the church, from gospel, you know, planting, uh, both individually and corporately. Just in your experience, what has that looked like? I think there's, you know, we've actually done a whole series on barriers and uh, just training around what, what potentially holds people back from carrying the mission or leaning into it. And uh, there's some simple ones like time, you know, people are always thinking about, well, I don't have time to throw parties. I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to do this. And it's like, well, if, if, if time is a barrier and you don't have time to fulfill the great commission, then you should probably stop doing some things and ask Jesus if these are the right things that you should be doing. Um, if there's one thing Jesus had, it was time. I mean, he's just super interruptible in that way. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, I've got space to stop and look into your eyes. I've got space to stop and hear what your needs are. And Jesus even, you know, the whole idea, he never assumes needs. Like this is one, we always talk about the story of blind Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, Jesus walks over. Hey, what do you need? 
He's, he literally says, what would you like me to do for you? Like, is it not obvious? I'd like to see, but Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't come and immediately heal him. He says, what would you like me to do for you? Because he cares about him. Like, it's not, it's not a, I assume what your needs are because he has time to do that. So time is often a big one. We coach around that. We try to help people think about how you integrate mission into your life because it's not about adding mission to your life. It's about viewing everything I do as always being on mission. When I walk my kids to school in the mornings, how am I seeking to listen to the things my neighbors are saying while we walk that they're communicating their deepest heart needs, their deepest fears, their desires, the things that they're anxious about. I can listen in that moment and I can speak good news into it. So that's, I'm on mission, always on mission. Uh, Fear of stranger is another one that uh, comes up. Brad Briscoe talks about this a good bit with, uh, forget the, the, you know, the Greek on this, right? Philoxenia or it's the, the, the love of stranger versus the fear of stranger. Xenophobia. Yeah. There we go. Xenophobia. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So using those two, two words is one is the love of stranger and one of them is the fear of stranger. And I think a lot of people just have this fear of stepping into relationships and, uh, and, and rather than demonstrating this extreme biblical hospitality of, I want to open my home and my table to those that have no sense of belonging somewhere. We have this fear that like, oh, well, I don't want to turn them off. I don't want to this. um, I don't want to be rejected, you know, and always encourage people in that one. It's like, you know, rather than being worried about introducing yourself to your neighbor and, and it going horribly wrong, what if you approached it with like, this might be my best friend for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what might that lead to? But that, that fear, these are simple things, right, that I'm talking about that I think are barriers. And like I said, there's a ton that are, that are more. But I think the one that is primary is whether or not we have fully surrendered to this concept of Jesus as Lord. And this is at the heart of what we do with the underground is continually trying to draw people back into this place where it's the heartbeat of who you are, that Jesus is Lord. Because out of that place of fully surrendered, like Jesus, you have control over my parents and you have control over my kitchen table. You have control over my finances. You have control over where I spend my time. Like if, if Jesus is informing all of those things, I don't mean control like you know, oppressive control or whatever, but like fully surrendered to the goodness of who you are. I think out of that flows a love for people that don't yet know him because we are in the process of beholding him, being filled up with the goodness of who he is. And we want to give that away. Uh, And so I think like a number one barrier to me is just whether or not you fully surrender to Jesus as Lord. I think he'll take care of a lot of those other things as we surrender more and more of our life to his lordship. That's good. Well, I was just thinking, sorry, I've been having some computer issues, so I haven't really been no here. It's just not been connecting well. Um, it's okay. I'm here. That's what you know. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say you got it covered. I'm obviously. the eye candy anyway. So, um, Well, the thing, the thing, <laughs> that's right, babe. You are. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. goodness for you. Yeah. Um, the thing that I was thinking about when we say, have we fully surrendered to Jesus as Lord? And you really let that sink in, you know, having come out of the prevailing model churches, we've said, 
it hurts a bit, right? It's like, ooh, ouch. So we're, you know, you're kind of saying like all those people who show up on Sunday, they maybe haven't fully surrendered to Jesus as Lord. You know, just, and it, who knows? I, I can't judge their hearts, but when we just look at kind of the fruit of what's happening and um, having been pastors for so long and you're constantly trying to get people there, but ultimately, have we really surrendered all of that? And we haven't, huh? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Brian, Brian's shaking his head. <laughs> I, he doesn't want to say it out loud, but he's shaking well, his head. <laughs> but it's not, yeah. it's not out of a spirit of, this is why we'd say it in the Southeast, it's not meanness. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, I'm not trying to be mean. Mm-hmm. And it's not the posture of my heart to go, to hold some weight over you even. Like Jesus is Lord is an invitational thing not a command, mm-hmm. not demanding this, like as the more you discover of his goodness, the more you want to surrender those things. And so I would say, no, most of those people have not surrendered to Jesus as Lord. Mm-hmm. They've surrendered to the idea of Jesus, mm-hmm. but not his Lordship yeah. because his Lordship would radically reinform the way that they live their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it's not, I'm not even saying they're not in the kingdom. I'm just saying there's not a fullness of of yeah. who he is informing their lives because we don't really offer that that much in the prevailing model. I, we didn't, you know, there's a lot of behavior modification, mm-hmm. but there was not a lot of, when we talk about your finances, what does that mean to be radically generous? Well, most mm-hmm. of the time that meant give to the building fund. Yeah. Not my neighbor Absolutely. just lost their job. So we're going to pay for their mortgage this month. Mm-hmm. And there's like that's radical generosity that's reinformed because of the gospel. And so, the, and you know, the I think the to talk about books that reformed me, apart from Surprised by Hope, would be Jeff Vanderstelt's Gospel Fluency. And I remember Purpose Driven coming out and people saying, you know, oh man, that first line, it just, it just changed my life. When Rick Warren said, it's not about you. I was like, really? I mean, I feel like Jesus said that a long time ago. <laughs> I, like, I feel like most, most, you know, of the world, I don't know why Rick Warren saying it changed the game for you, but great, you know. Um, and did it even really? No. Um, Cause, yeah, cause because, you because like, pride's the number one sin anyway. So. <laughs> Yeah, we don't really live like it's not about me. So did it? Anyway. But the first line of gospel fluency, if I remember correctly, is we're all unbelievers. And that reframing, like at first I was like, how dare you? You know, like I've been following Jesus since I was nine years old, but that's the problem is it's incomplete, not incorrect. And we haven't fully filled out what it means to be a follower that all of my life is surrendered. And so today I have areas of unbelief. And unfortunately, they're some of the same ones I had yesterday. Like for the most part of today, I've walked around with this like anxiousness in my heart. And the reason, I I mean, I'm not gonna get super vulnerable here, but I know what those reasons are. Now, if I process that the way that Jeff has helped us process it is like, what's the area of unbelief? Well, Ultimately, if I'm going to do this really fast rather than the long process is I don't think God's in control and I need to control some things. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not in control, that's why I feel anxious. 
Is God in control? Absolutely. Does he need me to help him? No. Right? I forget, is mm-hmm. it Raven Hill or somebody that makes this comment about, I, love, I always come back to this line probably once a day. God has a way and God has a universe. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> That's like when I repeat that to myself, I go, mm-hmm. yeah. And he's like, he flung the stars in the sky. He has a name for each of them. He knows the hair is on my head. And he does that for 8 billion people on the planet. He's never been out of control. And the, the most, the time when it looked like he was the most out of control was when he was on the cross. And that's when he was actually the most in control. And he did that for me. And even telling you this now, I feel better because I've good news to myself. And I've like moved from this, like, oh, I should have done this five hours ago. <laughs> it's like we have these areas of unbelief, but we don't preach Absolutely. that to people. We preach, get in or you're mm-hmm. not in yet. And then we don't yeah. teach them on the other side, like continue to find areas of unbelief and surrender. So when you ask the question, are those people sitting in the pews surrendered to Jesus as Lord? Probably not for most of them. Mm-hmm. And again, that doesn't mean they're not in the kingdom of God. It means mm-hmm. just we need to do a more faithful job of, of painting a more holistic gospel. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the uh, prevailing model systems that are, that are uh, maybe preventing this kind of spread of the gospel? We've talked a little bit about the the individual, but maybe some of the systems, and, and I can just pick on myself a little bit. I often say, you know, when we were pastoring a church, like we would tell people, go out and reach your neighbors and all this kind of stuff. But I expected them to be there on Sunday morning, an hour before and an hour after. I expected them to be part of a small group or some sort of ministry. I expected them to come to my Bible study to learn more. And then I expected them to give me all of their giving dollars. So now I'm telling them to go out and reach their neighborhood. Well, I've taken all of their money and I've given them no time. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how is that? You know, so I'm, mm-hmm. I think Kristen and I have a unique situation where we can speak on these things because we were the ones that were telling them mm. these things, you know? So yeah. just from your estimation, what are some of the church systems that are kind of holding it back? I would tell you this, it, for those listening, if you're interested in one what I think is one of the best treatments of that question. It's a book by this guy, Damien Girk. It's called In the Way and it's the church as we know it. So he talks about, he calls it the cocky model, C-A-W-K-I, church as we know it. And it's not cocky, but cocky. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, like, he really does a great job addressing, here's how systemically the church is structured to prevent growth. And I would say, like all of the things that you just mentioned, you know, again, a centralized approach works against movement because we can only speak to a very narrow pocket of people at that point. We're only going to resonate with people that capture our vision, that want to help us do that. Like if my vision is like, you know, in foster care in our city because every child has a home, people that are really lit up about that are going to join me. And people that are really passionate about the homeless community are not going to join me. And again, this goes back to the way that the whole structure is. There's a small group of people setting vision and saying, come help us do this. Come help us do this. But if it, if it doesn't 
speak to like my mission, the way Jesus made me. I mean, I can hang in for a little while, I guess, but ultimately it's not going to sustain that passion in my heart that Jesus gave me. And that's what we really lean into Ephesians 2, that uh, that he has created us anew in Christ Jesus, and he has given us this set body of good works in advance for us to do. So each of us have this set body of good works. Some of us were made to address the foster system. Some of us were made to address the homeless system. Some of us were made to address the addiction community, all of those little broken places. And the system is not designed to set people up to go accomplish their masterpiece mission. It's set up to invite you to accomplish the one that I've got that I'm excited about right now. Mm-hmm. And like we, I, I always say, I think we put guilt on people like, why won't you show up for this thing? That's the mission of the church. There's nothing wrong with those people for not showing up. You just didn't hit their thing. <laughs> you know? yeah. And we need to let them go do it. You know, so when mm-hmm. we're centralized and we're pulling in, that's actually pulling away from movement and pushing out. Uh, I want to be very careful how I say this one because it has defined me. It has informed the way that I personally led inside that model. And most of it was just tied to what we call a non-liberated financial model. And in a non-liberated financial model, that means I got to have a paycheck and you pay mm-hmm. me to do the works of mission. And yeah. I think it's Mike Breen that talks about how when, when the Western church left Britain, we left the feudal system and every, or when, the, when, when Westerners left Britain and came to America, we left the feudal system in every area but the church. It's the mm-hmm. one area where we still have wow. a feudal Lord sitting at the top that we go, protect us feed us. (laughs) And it's like, man, when I heard that the first time, I was like, yep, I have perpetuated that system. And, Mm -hmm. and it comes into this place of control. We find identity in, I am the lead pastor. I'm setting vision. And you hear this, like the language in those kind of passages, like, I just feel so responsible for my people. Well, you're not. Jesus is responsible for those people. Don't do his job. You know, like, man, just leading a church is so heavy. It's exhausting. It's tiring. Well, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Build a team. You know, like, yeah. Where were you 10 years ago? <laughs> People, yeah. That's another one. Yeah. Like, you know, planting a church. Like, we have a friend. He always goes, man, planting a church is lonely business. And we always say, well, you're doing it wrong. Because in the underground, we were not. We did this with six, eight families. Mm-hmm. And none of us owned the whole thing. And we told people from the beginning, we are not your pastors. Some of us have pastoral giftings and several of us don't. And you're going to look at those of us that don't, i.e. this guy. And because I'm louder and have a more apostolic bent, you might think I'm your leader. I'm not going to care for you well. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's why we need the body and we need the fullness of this expression. And typically, I think within the, the prevailing structures, it just doesn't have the fullness of the body represented in the sense of how the body speaks and informs itself. We have the eyes telling everybody what to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's so many more. And I I apologize if any of that came across arrogant or abrasive in any way. I, I was just a part of it for so long. And, and I feel for a lot of my friends that are still leading in it. And still having to hold that weight. And I would say, restructure. Invite the missional imagination that Jesus wants Mm -hmm. you to have. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's the, the hard part of, of, of that is if you do that, you won't have a paycheck anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I'm just like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying like, I'm not like you said, I'm not trying to be abrasive in that. I also have no pastoral gifts. So, you know, <laughs> this is not coming out with a lot of mercy, but it's just, you're not. And you're probably not going to be able to continue to pay the mortgage on your building. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's just, so sometimes like we have some friends that they feel like they're missionaries to the church. So they go into a church to try to help it kind of turn to be more missional. And I, I keep imploring him, you got to tell that pastor up front that it's likely going to cost him his job mm-hmm. if he's successful. Yeah, yeah. But we kind of leave that out. <laughs> yeah. Our friend does say, hey, you're going to lose some people. And that was our mm-hmm. experience as well. We started into that missional space and wanting to out, be more outward focused, taking the church to the harvest. And we lost, I mean, people just left left and right because they don't want that. They want someone to cater to them. I'm not getting fed. Oh my gosh. If I heard one more person say that. Yeah. Mm. And, and neither of us are pastoral. So we're not, (laughs) we're just, uh, sorry. Yeah. We're the worst pastoral couple that has ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) Our coaching to prevailing model church leaders is always just like what you feed grows. If you think small groups are the way, then feed them. We don't think they produce disciples like we act like they've produced disciples. If you want to build a disciple-making culture, feed disciple-making and find a system that actually multiplies what you want to see happen. But you better have a good definition of what that is that people are aiming for. Uh, Honestly, that's probably part of the problem in the prevailing model churches. Nobody knows. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like nobody knows what a disciple Mm -hmm. is. We haven't given them a Mm -hmm. clear definition. We've told people like, hey, our our mission is to lead people to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, that's so general that like anything I do could fit up under that, <laughs> you know? but it's not really changing my life either. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about how I am being transformed and therefore a part of the transformation of the culture in which I find myself. Mm-hmm. And we just like people need clarity on what it is that they're doing. And so like when we say what you what you feed grows, it's like we always encourage people start some disciple making environments that that prove themselves multiplicative into a multi-generational thing and then tell those stories. Don't stop stop telling the stories of small groups anymore. Just tell the stories of this stuff over here. Now what's going to happen is your small groups are going to die. But it will be at a pace where this other missional work that you're doing and this other disciple making environments have multiplied at such a rate that they will take over. And people are going, how do I get in one of these things where my life is being transformed and I am encouraging the transformation of others. So, you know, if you want it to grow, feed it. If you don't, don't waste mm-hmm. time on it, you know, and Jesus, he mm-hmm. gives us, he gives us a framework for this. He doesn't chase down the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we, are, I think sometimes pastors have this mentality of like, I got to create space for everybody. He's like, nope, no, he, he just doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and he's not mean about it except when they are mean to him, <laughs> right? <laughs> then he calls them a brood of vipers, but you know what I mean? Like he doesn't go right. out of his way to like, to be mean or to, to uh, bully people or to uh, like hurt them. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. I, I want to go to the margins and create space for belonging. Mm-hmm. 
if you'd like to join me there, I would love for you to do that. Right. And go there. Yeah. And I guess that circles back around to in the prevailing model, at least in, let's just say in ours, right, in our church, it didn't work because yeah. they didn't want to go to the highways and the byways. They wanted the highways and byways to maybe come to them. But even then they were like, what are these sketchy people doing in our building? What do you mean? that Like they are a non-traditional family. Why are they here? They're going to influence my kids. You know, we've talked yeah. about that on other episodes. So yeah, I think it's, yeah, a, it's, it's, it's tough. It goes back to what you were saying about the fear of stranger. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and ultimately Jesus is Lord informs all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, he yeah. informs the way that I love people. And where I go mm-hmm. and who I hang mm-hmm. with. Yeah. yeah. Well, last question. Let's bring it on home. Can you give us a word of encouragement, exhortation, wisdom to people that are listening that may, they feel their heart is resonating with what you're saying and they want to, like God's given them a burden. Maybe they're even church leaders and say, man, I want to do things differently. What would be your, your exhortation to our audience? Yeah, you know... I appreciate that you gave me some notes ahead of time so I could think about that one. <laughs> and the fir- I'll just give you the first two things that jumped into my mind is one, uh, connect to a network. And I think that, you know, a lot of, in in my history, a lot of the the more missional people were like, man, the church just isn't creating a space for me to do this. But I know there's more. And they went, not, I don't want to say rogue, but they went solo at least. Mm-hmm. And because they went solo, it's just like, yeah, here comes the enemy is going to pick you off. Like, that's just mm-hmm. going to happen. Just don't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what we, we tell people in Kansas City. Jesus never sent anybody alone, so we don't either. Go in a team. If you can't find a team that's passionate about your deal, just get online and start Googling stuff. <laughs> <You'll find something. laughs> but connect to a network. Uh, it's just, you know, I watched something last night that talked about it. You know, if you have one little twig, you can break that twig. But as soon as you have eight or nine, it starts to become more and more difficult to break those twigs. So connect mm. to a network uh, and and join up. Like Jesus wants us to be like the fullness of his body, filling everything in every way, Ephesians 1. And then the second thing that really popped out in my mind was just get started. Just try some stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, it's like, I don't have to be perfect. I really don't. Like I, you know, we started with some failure stories and I I have plenty. Like I said, I can give you one a day and we just try stuff. And when it doesn't work anymore, we just try new stuff. And when that stuff doesn't work anymore, we'll either go back and try the other stuff or try some new stuff. <laughs> and we say we're a community that iterates uh, because if if we have a God that has created all the things we have seen and so much more that we'll discover for the rest of eternity and Christ is in us, the hope of glory, we can tap into that creativity now. So just try some things uh, and do it in a culturally intelligent way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just try some mm-hmm. things. And when, when it doesn't hit, repent and try something new. Mm. That's good. Cool. Kristen, do you want to bring us on home? Oh, okay. Sure. Thank you, Brian. It was really awesome to have yeah, you. Yeah, thanks, bud. So good. Yeah. You almost, really, really you're good. almost at the record for length. I mean, you got like <laughs> four minutes, man. So I'm kind of torn. Like, should I ask him another question just to get him over the hump? Or, yeah, no, sorry. 
I don't know if it's because I'm from the southeast and I talk slower or if it was actually good. (laughs) No, it was was good. A little bit of both. How about that? A little bit of both. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fabulous. So good. So good. So blessed. Go ahead, honey. Bring it home. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Only on a Sunday. Next time, we will continue our conversation of stories in the field with Lee Price from Ignited Colorado. If you've enjoyed the content offered on these podcasts and would like to support us and our team, we would love to invite you to donate at scvunderground.org. We truly appreciate any support from our listeners. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. See ya.